When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's the link between race, admissions, and achievement in today's higher education? Is it easier for some groups to get into college, thanks to affirmative action, and harder for others? The lawsuits against affirmative action involving Harvard University, the University of North Carolina, and other schools all claim that affirmative action is unfair, unjust, and, this is clear from the rhetoric used by some, un-American. Does this notion have any grounding in reality? Professor Uyan Poon studies higher education and analyzes policies in light of hard data, not myths and misperceptions. I spoke with her to get some clarity on holistic reviews for admissions, what it means to use race only as one factor, on the achievements of various groups and on her own trajectory from a student in several institutions with a BA, a Master's of Education, and a PhD at UCLA, where she served as president of the University of California Student Association. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. I'm really happy to be speaking today with Oyan Poon, who is Assistant Professor of Higher Education at Colorado State. So Oyan, first of all, thank you for making time to be on Think About It. Yeah, happy to be here. So I'm really excited. I really look forward to this conversation. You work on various topics. You're a researcher, an analyst of higher education policies on race and ethnicity and how it intersects with those policies. You have a PhD from UCLA, a Master's of Education, University of Georgia, and then I think a BA from Boston College. Uh, My sister went to Boston College as well, so I know it well. <laughs> and so your background has really given you a view of several very different institutions. And now your work is about studying, I assume, sort of the impact of policies on student and faculty experience in a range of American institutions, right? Yes, definitely. And as you know, and I've had a couple of conversations you may have seen on the topic of affirmative action from different perspectives. So I've, I've talked to legal experts, sociologists, and students who focused on the case against Harvard University right now that's still in the court, in federal court, we're waiting for a decision there. But they wanted to give me a bit of a broader context of how to approach this topic. And as you know, it's a topic that a lot of people are very concerned with. Uh, a lot of 
teenagers, high school students who are applying to college or about to apply to college are actually aware of a, something that isn't really a national policy or a law, but they know this exists and they think about it because it may or may not impact them. So that's one just group and demographic. Then there's parents who think about it quite a lot as well and think, is my kid going to be looked at in particular ways, especially because of their demographic background, but their ethnic background as well and where they went to school. And then the university administrators who have to balance all these things out and try to do the best to get the best class to come to the right school to make that fit. So this large set of questions sort of cuts across so many things and it gets to the heart of some fundamental beliefs or myths about America. <laughs> that college is the thing that's going to get you ahead, that there's some idea that the best students really get to the best schools, and that this process should be absolutely fair. And, and fairness here is, I think, what becomes interesting. Right? So I just wanted you to see if you can jump in. This is a lot. It's a broad topic. Yeah. But I, and a lot of what I hear from people, really, it's from friends of mine, from colleagues, and from students who come to me and say, look, I'm Asian, or you know, one of my parents is Asian American. Should I even say that on a college application? So you really want to, I really want to help people to break this down and say, this is what this is about, whether it even affects them or whether they should be worried or whether they think this helps them or hurts them. And we know the Harvard case is pitting people against one another in a kind of very public way. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot that you just packed into that one or two minutes. <laughs> um, I think, you know, that there's a lot of misinformation out there about higher education more generally, and then particularly when it comes to questions of highly selective admissions. This question of who's getting into Harvard is certainly or other elite universities like that is certainly a question of privilege, I think, in a lot of ways, because most people, if you zoom out, right, most Americans are actually not going to college, or I should say graduating from college, right? So only, I think, the last I looked at it, demographic data from the Census Bureau and, and other public data sets is showing that only maybe slightly less than a third of adults in the United States complete a college degree, right? And so I think for those of us who are college educated, it's kind of this lack of awareness of the rest of the world and, and or even just the world we live in, quite frankly. And then I think that uh, for the college educated, of course, we, you know, we have greatly benefited from what college did for us in our lives, whether that was economically or you know, civically and, and leadership wise, et cetera. Um, and so obviously we want to pass that down to our children. And so we are, we look at data out there and we see that college graduates make up most of the middle class in America. And so of course that capital we want to pass on to our children. And so then you have this very, I think, unawares privileged segment of the adult population that doesn't recognize that, uh, one, they do recognize the benefits of college, but then two, that there's more colleges out there than 20. <laughs> right, about 4,000, I think, right? Probably. Right, more than 4,000 colleges and universities yeah. who all offer an array of curricula, educational opportunities, vocational development opportunities, um, all kinds of really great diversity of educational offerings 
that you know people don't recognize. So then there's this, I think, artificial anxiety created about where our kids are going to go to college. I mean, you're seeing that today. I, I'm sure you've seen the news, Uli, that um, there are federal indictments right now of 50 individuals, celebrities and wealthy individuals who have accused of committing fraud and bribery um, of universities like Yale and Stanford and USC to try to get their children into these elite universities. And so it's good to have this conversation. <laughs> but that's an interesting news item in some ways because it says, of course, it's a kind of, this is the super rich, this is the elite, but the fact that the public cares. So, and what you're saying is that although maybe two-thirds of Americans won't even attend a four-year college or graduate, or maybe they'll go to a community college, junior college, or they'll go for a while and get another type of degree, or they go to professional schools. But the fact that people attach so much significance is this idea behind it, I think, that this is obviously the, the gateway to the American dream. And then what you're saying, this news item, is that some people are buying their way into it. Well, that's not fair. The, the names of these people on all the buildings and all these big schools. So in some ways, people have, I think, a whiff of a, of a hint of an idea that maybe money has something to do with certain kind of types of access. But this idea that it's a gateway to the middle class or keeps you in the middle class, and you said that kind of bears out, that income ultimately will actually be proportionally higher for people who have a degree, a college right. degree, right? I mean, as a nation, we should want more college graduates, right? I am all for a much right. higher percentage of the American population with college opportunities. I mean, this is my career focus is, you know, right. uh, increasing access to college and of all sorts. My, I think in my work, though, I often question things like rankings, right? I feel like these are sort of artificially and privileging of certain institutions over others when all kinds of colleges and universities are doing really great work. Tell me something about the ranking, because it's an interesting thing. Yeah. It's actually, everybody pays attention to it. U.S. News and World Report makes a lot of money with this issue. And I actually, at some point in my life, filled out lots of bubbles and ranked colleges and universities. But they were literally thousands. So I'm leafing through pages and pages. I've not heard of some of these schools. Of course, I couldn't, conceivably. And I've heard of the big brand names. So the game becomes ultimately, do I rank this elite institution above the other one? And I'm supposed to think about the faculty to student ratio and the research and the prizes won and what kind of facilities they have and what kind of student services and what kind of financial aid. But it's so complex and I'm filling out a little bubble saying this one above that one. And this is what this is largely based on. High level college administrators and faculty or experts like you, we're gonna rank colleges that you've never really heard of before, right? So right. I mean I, I study this for a living. I study higher education for a living, and I don't think I can name more than maybe 100 to 150 colleges and universities, right? A lot. Heard of them, right? I mean, there's a lot of colleges and universities, and so to rank them, you know, I was, when I was growing up, U.S. News and World Report was an actual print magazine, right. Um, right. a weekly, if you will, and um, they are no longer an actual <laughs> print magazine anymore. Um, they have become, you know, despite their name still as U.S. News and World Report, has just become a ranking cottage shop, you know, and, and it's just, is, universities care about it. I mean, I can tell you that people yeah. want to be in the top, the top 30, yeah. the top Absolutely. And, and there's a reason for that. It, it doesn't necessarily have to do with educational quality, though. You know, when I have in my research pushed college and university administrators 
to tell me why do they care about these rankings so much or why should test scores matter so much in the methodology for the U.S. News and World Report rankings. When it comes down to it, what I have been told is essentially it matters for the bank ratings. Oh, for their, for their, whether they get loans or not, do they get triple A or double A or something, some kind of, so they get, they get Exactly. So we know that, you know, there's been decades of research that demonstrate that the SAT and the ACT don't mean a whole lot educationally. You know, even the college board has come out and saying it doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> um, I can say a little bit more. So I know that um, I think it, there was a, is it Lonnie Guarnier who wrote a book on the SAT, the kind of the fallacy of the meritocracy. So there's yeah. a kind of so just what was it what is it supposed to predict and what does it not predict really? Yeah, I mean, so it's been found to be most and the college board president a few years ago came out on record with and quoted as saying as such that their test, the test that they make millions and millions of dollars off of, you know, that it is very strong at predicting the racial and economic background of any test, any given test taker. I used to say that the, the SAT, I took this from this book, said it predicts two things reliably, which was family income and zip code. That's right. And, and, and zip code is comes to racial segregation and residential patterns. And does it correlate to um, student achievement or success or completion at all? The Very little. Um, so it is, uh, the decades of research has found, and Saul Geyser at Berkeley is, is one whose research has really you know, found this time and again, is that um, the SAT scores predict approximately 5 to 10% of freshman year, the variance in freshman year grades in college. So above and beyond high school transcripts, it doesn't tell you much. High school transcripts, regardless of the quality of high school, wherever a student has attended high school, predicts about, I think the last I looked at was like 20, a little over 20% of freshman year grade variance, right? And so it doesn't really predict a whole lot um, of how a student would do academically. But we also know that college is not just about performance in the classroom, right? And so it ultimately at the end of the day, both of these numeric quantitative measures tell us very little about who a student is, who, what they might bring to a college campus, how they might perform in four to, you know, four to five years. And I think the game for people who are in this, in this game, the set, say, 30, 40% who want their kids to go to college, they all know that high school scores, test scores, and then all the other stuff, extracurricular, your background, et cetera. And that's when, that's strangely enough where people think this is where it's really vague and diffuse and what do I say here? Whereas the first two measures you're saying are not even really reliable for academic achievement over the long term. So we should look at the first two measures and say these are not really that great. But people say, okay, I'll take the test, get high grades. Now I got to present myself in this way that the school is going to like me. And I yeah. think this is what touch into this kind of these policy questions. Yeah, and so, you know, currently I just kicked off a uh, Spencer Foundation funded research study where I'm interviewing college admissions officers across the country at selective institutions. And I'm on the very early stages, the major, the big question of this study is how does race conscious holistic review work, right? You know, I've only finished in the last month, 10 interviews. So we're very early on. My goal is to complete 50 to 60 interviews, but uh, so far it's amazingly consistent across 
these interviews, you know, race conscious holistic review or holistic review for that matter, um, let's start there, is really about, you know, um, it's, it's about fit, right? So what I'm learning about the job of college admissions officers is it's multiple fold. One, they're an investigator. They're trying to investigate and figure out who is this given applicant? What is their story? Where are they coming from? What is the context of their achievements? And, and in their investigation, they're trying to kind of predict what kind of student is this going to be on our campus? The second part of the job I was feeling like, I've been starting to feel like, is that they're kind of matchmakers too, uh, right? Because yes. they're trying to figure out, you know, their job is to also investigate as an admissions officer, what, it, what are all the different parts of our college and university? Um, for instance, NYU. There's lots of different parts of NYU, lots of different offerings. And so then you get tens of thousands of applicants right, essentially trying to court NYU in some ways, right, and so the admissions officer then suddenly plays the role of matchmaker to try to find out which of these tens of thousands of applicants would be a very good match for our debutantes, so to speak. Right, right. And say something what holistic means in this context here, the word yeah. holistic means yeah, just breaking down that word holistic, it comes from, you know, the notion of wholeness. To look at any given applicant as a whole person within, grew up in and went to school within a particular community, a unique community, a unique school, a unique family, and to acknowledge that that human life is complicated. And, and our, our, our social context, our social experiences are very complicated in these various spaces that we Living. And um, I want to note something. It's quite interesting what you're saying. It's a matchmaking process to sort of find the right student for the correct institution. In other systems, it would have been entirely based on a test score. So there are right. other systems in other countries where you take a score, and if you score this number, you get to a school. In America, we have a few versions of this, and we'll get to talk about this, the, the state systems that take a certain percentage maybe or from high schools. But in some countries, all the kids in China would sit in June for their high school exams. You wouldn't have construction sites outside. You wouldn't have traffic. You wouldn't have noise because it is decisive. And there is no such thing as holistic. They say this number tells you who this kid is, and that's where they're going to go to school. Right. And they're slotted into a program. And if you want to study medicine or natural sciences, it's different from maybe the humanities or journalism. So you're even given a number and you get to where they think you would do the best. So this holistic is a very American idea of looking at the individual but what's interesting, and then, because, and then you said the other word, it's what you look at, race-conscious, holistic. Can you say what that race-conscious yeah. means in this, in this context here? Absolutely. So I think a lot about my own story. Um, when I think about race-conscious, holistic review, I was born to Chinese immigrants. I was born in Boston, raised in Western Massachusetts, where I grew up in a very racially hostile community towards my family. And so my experiences, my educational experiences were very much shaped by the fact that I'm the daughter of Chinese immigrants growing up in a predominantly white working class immigrant community. These were white immigrants. So it was a not so fun experience growing up in that community for me. Um, I also, but then also my school district was underfunded and under-resourced. And so uh, I didn't get a whole lot of educational opportunities uh, growing up in that community. My story is both raced and class. Um, and so... Um, Meaning shaped, shaped by your family background and the fact that you're exactly. in a poor, under-resourced community. If you've gone to a very wealthy high school in the suburbs, maybe it would have been a it different experience. A very, 
different experience, right? Also, I, I went through an almost daily barrage of racist attacks going growing up in that community, which really defines who I am and perhaps that some people might connect that experience to the work that I do today. You know, well, because you're, look, you're looking at the impact of race and ethnicity and in, in education. So right. you're saying you had that experience also. I mean, did, did the school pick this up or did the school have a way to yeah, handle this? I mean, the teachers had no idea what to do with this, right? And so I, I grew up in the 80s. You know, what is an Asian American? People don't really understand what that is oftentimes. I tell this story oftentimes in my talks. I just did a TED talk and I opened up with this question that I that I faced in the in the sixth grade as a 12-year-old, um, the demographic question on test day, where it asked me what a black, white, or other. And I had no idea what to respond to. Like, how would I answer that question? Because my school and my community has told me time and again, you are definitely not white. <laughs> you are not white. Right. Okay. Um, okay. And so but now it's not 2019 and we have freshened up the boat and everything has been resolved, right? So now we... <laughs> so, actually, so give us a little more of this experience. So then you go to Boston College. So in some ways, in this holistic review, people would presumably look at this. So you went to a particular high school. Yeah. You, you made this out of these circumstances and maybe in college you would continue on this path. Right. And so, the, you know, the admissions officers at Boston College couldn't have predicted fully, right, with 100% accuracy who I would become or how I would be as a student, but they could tell enough. They knew enough that, well, first of all, when I applied to Boston College, it was nowhere near as competitive <laughs> as it is today. I think the admit rate when I applied was something like 45%, 50 um, Today, it's more like 20 I honestly do not think I would have gotten in today, mostly because I only had the choice of three AP courses in that high school, right? And I took all three, but that I didn't take the most rigorous curriculum, quite frankly. Um, I, I did not have the range of educational opportunities or extracurricular opportunities available to my wealthier classmates. But for whatever reason, Boston College, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I'm like, for whatever reason, BC saw something in me, um, and perhaps it was their Jesuit mission of serving working class students. Perhaps it was, you know, an interest in having someone like me who was Asian American, but coming from a very unique background. Um, was race the reason why they let me in? I don't think so. Um, but I think it was my total package, my whole story. Uh, it's interesting what you just said, the considerations, you kind of named some of their thinking and the policy thinking around affirmative action. The first one could be you, you come from a under-resourced background, so a college should reach out and say, we need to get kids who actually hadn't gotten these advantages and opportunities into a school that will provide them. The second reason you said, maybe we want a student like Oyan because it's good for the other students as well. It adds to the diversity of the campus, which is the argument that having a diverse student body enhances the educational experience. Then there are other people who actually think, and I talked to Randall Kennedy at Harvard, he said this argument, he doesn't really believe it. This diversity is good for everybody. He says, no, it's a form of restitution and reparative justice yeah. for people who left out of the American dream. And then he said, and if you don't want to pay for it because you weren't part of it, you pay for lots of things you weren't part of. You pay for the highways and the fire departments. You pay for things you never take advantage of. This is one right. of those things. It's good for, it's politically good for the country. So these are different arguments. And maybe Boston College used all of them. <laughs> right. And that's holistic review. It's, you, you can't, my story is, was, my story is very much racialized. It was classed. It was gendered. All of these things. 
growing up in an immigrant family, all of these things. To take any piece of that, including the question of race, it diminishes my story and my experiences and my human dignity, quite frankly. Now, this question of the purposes of- wanna, Sorry, I wanna hear a little bit more about this, what yeah. you just said. If I can go back to the, uh, the, the purposes- what you just you said if you took race out of it, because in some ways the Harvard Law Institute, for example, and many right. of these laws, just remove this aspect, because they're not saying take out where a kid went to school, take out who the parents are, take out what their gender is, which you could presumably take out that their parents went to the college, take out that they're athletes. They say take right. out race. Take out race, and, and perhaps this is my qualitative researcher side of me, but I, and, and just being a human being, <laughs> I have a hard time understanding how you can take race out of my story. Who I am today has been so directly affected by how racialized my growing up experiences were. Everything I had, you know, who I am today, um, who I was then, um, was very much shaped by that experience of race. And so in applying to college, I think, you know, it's been a long time ago since I applied, but I vaguely remember writing one of my essays about growing up as the Chinese American daughter of immigrants and the, the adversities that I faced in that experience and how I overcame those experiences, how I became a, a student leader in that community. And so taking that race piece out of my story then just becomes this story of leadership with no contextual information, right? It's a different kind of leadership. I didn't have a whole lot of resources, but I I nonetheless became a community leader in face in the face of racial and class adversities and gender. Well, I want to ask you something else about this because what you just described that your experience, what you say was raised or racialized, I presume the people who are mounting this lawsuit, who knows, this guy Bloom, I mean, I can sort of assume what he thinks. I think what he also thinks that actually this isn't correct and nobody's experience is racialized. And first of all, he would think as a white person, a white man, he doesn't have an experience that has anything to do with race because it's objective, neutral, and natural. So I think one of the learning steps is for people to say everybody has this as part of the identity. I think that's really a big step. And there's a kind of strange reluctance to do this. I mean, we see the, the, the blowback against it is kind of this resurgence of sort of white pride and white supremacy. But in some ways that everybody is living through these experiences that inform who they are, that reflect how society treats them. Absolutely. And so I've actually talked to some lawyers shortly after the Fisher 2 case in, in 2016, um, I was no, in the, the Texas case in Austin. Yes. So what's this case about? Just remind Fisher, the listeners. Fisher versus University of Texas. So Abigail Fisher, who is the secretary for SFFA, as in SFFA versus Harvard, <laughs> she and Ed Bloom sued the University of Texas, and was their trial. Their case was heard twice in the Supreme Court, once in 2015 and then in 2016. And in 2016, the Supreme Court came out. And um, their decision sided with the University of Texas, acknowledging that everyone's experiences, like you said, is influenced by these social factors and components of the world we live in. Um, and that needs to be considered in understanding who students are, especially at these highly selective universities, which have many, many more applicants than they have space for, right? And so then when you have an abundant, overabundance of highly academically qualified students, then how do you pare down to fit your class? Um, and and the, court, the court also said 
the university has some prerogative to decide how to set up the university. We shouldn't interfere too much. And some ways it's an interesting example where now you have these lawsuits against universities where they want the court to intervene and the court Right, said, so it's, it's about institutional mission, right? It goes back to that matchmaking between the beauty, the difference between a, a higher ed system in say China or the United States is that the whole purpose of higher education in these two different nations are completely different. Um, in the United States, we're lucky to have a diverse, um, the marketplace for higher education is very diverse. Right, and so it acknowledges that diversity of people, of skill sets, of interests. Right, like a, you wouldn't have a a, a a musician prodigy, right, musical prodigy, go to MIT. I don't know. Maybe MIT has an amazing music they program. Probably have a few, right? Right. Or 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 Caltech, right? Like that doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. But the musical right. prodigy should have a college or university that really allows them to flourish, right? So it goes back to that matchmaking. I think Fisher, the Supreme Court recognized the diversity of both student talents, but also institutions in, in the United States. And, and that matchmaking process that happens in the admissions process. The other thing is, you know, uh, you mentioned the earlier interview that you'd mentioned from the Kennedy School. No, it's, it's Randall Kennedy, who is a professor at Harvard Law School. So he's oh, written a book called For, For Discrimination yeah. in the so Defense of I absolutely agree with Professor Kennedy in saying that affirmative action should be about addressing, redressing racial wrongs. However, the Supreme Court in 1978 in the Bakke case said it could not do that any longer. So Bakke is University of California, Davis. It's a medical school case, right? right? UC Davis and Medical what, And the court says what in that case? The court said in that case, number one, that diversity is very important. And so they, it shifted the legal purpose and goal of affirmative action in higher education from one of racial reparations or racial remediation, the remedial rationale is what it's called, um, to one of diversity, acknowledging that diversity is very important to educational um, settings, right? And, and also the second thing that the ruling stated was that racial quotas are illegal. So then this myth, there's a constant myth that still is out there that affirmative action is a racial quota, but that hasn't been the case since I was two years old. You know? Right. Um, right. So right? there is no, it's actually quite important. There's no federal law called affirmative action. There are no racial quotas, there are no numbers. And if you listen to the popular discussion, people think, oh, there's a mandated requirement to take X number of kids. No, there is, and, and if, there, if that is practice, that is unconstitutional. And so, yes, you should get into legal trouble for that, according to the case law. Now, we shift forward to 2003, the two Michigan cases, Bruder versus Bollinger and Gratz versus Bollinger, and the University of Michigan one in the Grutter case, in the law school case, and in that, the Supreme Court said race can be one of many factors in order to create a diverse learning educational environment. And now what's critical here is that by 2003, you have about three decades of research, social science and, and, and psychological science demonstrating that you have to have racial diversity to achieve the highest levels of educational goals and benefits, such as cognitive development and advancement, civic leadership development. And, and in the United States, if we do care about having a diverse democracy, then this is absolutely critical to having leaders who can solve social problems. Also, in the twin case, the undergraduate Michigan case, the Gratz case, the Supreme Court said that 
point systems are illegal. And so you can't give an automatic point bonus or a hard bonus to someone just because they checked off a demographic box as underrepresented. I think that's the second myth that is very common out there. I often, I was just at various college campuses last week and I asked these students, how old were you in 2003? And several of them said I was four or five. <laughs> I'm like, that was the last time that point system was illegal or a hard bonus was legal. And then you move forward to the Fisher case in 2016 and the Supreme Court in that case yet again reaffirmed that diversity is very important to educational institutions. Now we have more than four decades of research <laughs> demonstrating time and again, right, that diversity is absolutely critical to, to educational institutions to achieve educational goals. Well, let me ask you something here that Professor Kennedy said about this. So you're saying yeah. that diversity has been proven to sort of add to the outcome overall because people will learn better, learn more, learn different things, can switch perspectives, et cetera, whatever is productive to problem solving, I guess. Yeah. And, and Professor Kennedy said, yes, but there is a cost. And he said, actually, it's quite interesting. He said, generally, people understate the cost. And he said, yes, some people will not get in and other people will get in. That's how life is. He said that, but that's how everything is. And he said, if you single out one kid and said, this kid didn't get in and I got in, that is not the right approach. He said, generally speaking, of course, someone will get in, someone will not get in. But that's not because they were unjustly, unreasonably advantaged. So would you say this is enough of a justification, this idea that diversity makes for better educational outcomes? I mean, I am a social scientist, <laughs> so, and I have read a lot of this research and looked into the methods, and I would, I would have to agree with the findings of these, this plethora of, of studies. So there is, yes, a, an educational benefit to be gained, various educational benefits to be gained for all types of students. But I would agree with Professor Kennedy in that I would like to see a reinstatement of an affirmative action to really push an, an agenda for racial equity. We do not have a policy for racial equity any longer since, I would say, since 1978 with the Bakke ruling. And so I remember last summer seeing in the New York Times this graph, and I think the headline said something even with affirmative action, these Black and Latinx students enrollments have been declining. And, and it's fascinating to see the starting point is 1980. And my reaction was, well, of course not, because there hasn't been affirmative action since 1978, in essence, right? And, and there has not been a policy for racial equity in higher education of that magnitude, you know? And so I think this is why uh, Justice Sotomayor, in one of her footnotes in the Schuette case, said something like, we're not really talking about affirmative action anymore, we're talking about race-sensitive mm -hmm. policy. And, and the attacks on so-called affirmative action is really an attack on an acknowledgement that my story, your story, all of our lived experiences are influenced by all of these various social forces. So then it's an attack on recognizing the uniqueness of my story and your story. Because after the Fisher case, I asked, the, I was in a room full of lawyers and I asked them, you know, the way the decision reads, right? Because uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion said holistic review is essentially the best practice, is that it sounds like even a white student could be looked upon positively if they write about race or if, or there's evidence that uh, race kind of shaped their experiences. Right. And, you know, some of the attorneys in the room said, you're right, you know, it's a, right? So 
in, in that way, Professor Kennedy is right. Like we don't have a policy for racial equity and that rightly concerns me. Um, and so then what is this fight over? And you mentioned Bloom being essentially um, color evasive. I, I'm, I'm calling it, you know, he's evading this notion that racism and race matter in the society we live in. Yeah, I was just thinking whether that's what his that's what he wants to achieve. I mean, I looked at the I talked to Frank Wu and he said, look at the prayer for relief in that case, which was on page one thirty nine of that whole case against Harvard University, and they they don't mention at all Asian Americans. So the six points they want is to drop race out, never mention it, never allow it as a criteria. Right. But they right. never say admit more Asian Americans to Harvard. So in yeah. some way, weirdly enough, after one hundred and thirty seven pages of a lawsuit where they come up with all sorts of things, they say, we don't really, actually, we don't mention them anymore. So in some way, the plaintiffs are not really what drives this lawsuit or the fact that supposedly not enough Asian Americans go to Harvard. Well, the plaintiffs are not Asian American. (laughs) (laughs) As far as I know, I may be missing something entirely, but as far as I know, the president of SFFA, who is Ed Bloom, the secretary of SFFA, Abigail Fisher, and the treasurer of SFFA, Abigail Fisher's father, <laughs> these three board of directors and founders of SFFA, SFFA being the plaintiff in the lawsuit against Harvard and against UNC Chapel Hill and now against UT Austin a third time. So they right? just want to drive this back to the Supreme Court, which is strange, as yeah. you said, because it hasn't even be, it's not a law on the books. It's not necessarily that the Supreme Court has to intervene here. It's not that all these universities are doing illegal things. So in some ways, it generated this national conversation. And I want to ask you specific things. I started out when parents, a lot of parents ask me really say, is it going to be harder for my kid because we're Asian American? And you hear this all the time and all the news stories are set up in this way of having these kids and you always talk to four kids and then what their results going to be. And in some ways, what you said earlier, of course, the target is not the one college in America. There are many, many fantastic choices really for, right, for the rights. Right. And so, you know, let me give you a, a story or example of like this question to answer your question. Will it be harder for my kid to get in because of affirmative action or race consciousness? No. <laughs> well, okay. So let me give you a, 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 an example. Last week when I was visiting Yale and UConn and Tufts University, and I was talking to students, two students came up to me, two of the schools, and they both asked me essentially the same question which was if an Asian American applicant who was rejected from an elite college had been black, would they have gotten in easier, right? And my response is that person doesn't exist. So going back to my example again. So yes, I grew up in an under-resourced community. I didn't have an array of opportunities. I faced a very racially hostile environment, but at the same time, based on the research that I'm familiar with about teacher and counselor behaviors and towards students of racially minoritized backgrounds, I know that the teachers that I encountered, even if they didn't know how to handle the race question and support me with facing a racist environment, they were very supportive of me and they would often reach out to me and try to affirm me. I think that if I had been black, given the plethora of research out there, that experience would have been different. Secondly, even though I grew up in a working class, under-resourced community, and my family, my parents didn't have a whole lot of ways to support my educational aspirations, their educational aspirations, we had a very strong Chinese community network. 
And in that network and community, there were Chinese Americans living in wealthier communities with much more educational capital, and they shared that with me. And they shared that with my family. And because of that, I had heard of Boston College. I had heard of schools beyond UMass Emmert um, or UMass Boston. Um, wonderful schools, by the way. I postdoc'd at UMass Boston, so shout out. Um, but I had more options because of those social networks. What we know from research about working class, uh, low-income African-American students and other racialized minority students is that perhaps they don't have that kind of resource that I had. They have other kinds of resources, but it's different, right? So racism affects different groups in different ways. And so when the question comes up, like, would I have gone into Harvard, say, had I been Black? I really don't think so. Um, because one, that student doesn't exist. <laughs> yes, that's actually quite interesting. But what you're saying is because they've been, groups are pitted against one another. And it's a, it's a myth. This is, not, this is not the battle you're facing here. Yeah, it's not. And so is there, I think the question that some of these parents are asking um, as Asian Americans, will my child face a harder path to get into an elite school? I think is the question of, underlying that question is a recognition that one, Asian Americans still face racism. That there is a very unique kind of different kind of racism that Asian Americans experience. And there's an acknowledgement there. And in my own research, in my interviews with Asian Americans, I have found that even anti-affirmative action Asian Americans acknowledge, yeah, we're, we face racism, right? But their understanding of racism is quite different than those who are supportive of affirmative action. So they don't necessarily see it. They don't have a clear systemic analysis. They see it as just like, a, oh, Uli, you were mean to me, so you're, you were being racist to me, rather than this larger system that affects our lives in different ways. Um, so yeah. I think one, it's an acknowledgement of, of an anxiety that we live in a racist society. And so these parents are concerned that their kids are facing racism behind closed doors in the admissions office. But I think at the end of the day, there's also a lot of advantages on average that Asian American families do have, you know, and ultimately the admissions process behind closed doors, as I'm learning, like I said, is kind of this matchmaking process. And so my nephew, right, is a high school senior right now. Hey, Alex, <laughs> is a very bright kid, scored almost 1,500 on the SATs, right? A good going, Alex, um, you know, is, is near the top of his class in high school. His older sister got into Tufts with lower scores, not as high in the class rank, but Alex just got rejected by Tufts. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> right? terrible. Oh, it's it, so... You know, but you know what? I love, maybe I'm biased because it's my family, but um, my cousin has raised these kids in such a great way because Alex is just like, well, that's just not where I'm meant to be, you know? And, and instead, he's gotten some great offers at UMass Amherst and, and uh, Northeastern University. And here's the interesting thing. He got deferred from early action at University of Chicago into the regular pool. So he wasn't outright rejected. And the whole family is like, we don't get it. He got outright rejected at Tufts with a sibling in as a sophomore, but he's not been outright rejected at the University of Chicago, an arguably more prestigious institution. Um, and I think also what's important to say at this point maybe is that most 
and when we're talking right now at these very elite institutions, really yeah. amazing institutions, both public and private, that actually for most students it does work out. That the first year, they're of course more transfer than they used to be 25 years ago, so maybe 25 to 20 percent of students will transfer at some point, but mostly actually they will find the they're right they go, they go to the right school, exactly, <laughs> and they forget this senior experience. Hopefully you had someone advising you to not just apply to places with less than a 5% admit rate. <laughs> Hopefully you're applying to a range of places like my, my, my nephews and, and niece did. And, you know, in Alex's case, the family is shocked. Like, why was he not outright rejected at University of Chicago? And my argument is the admissions office is doing a good job of matchmaking. <laughs> Maybe it's and, the right school. Right. And I'm like, he, that's where his people are. That's where his people are. It's like, you know, if Chicago decides to take him, it would make complete sense to me because, and then his sister was like, are you calling him a nerd? I was like, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I know, I don't even want to say what, the, what do the kids say about Chicago? That's where fun goes to die. Or, I don't yeah, know, I'm exactly. sure it's it's where fun really goes to remarkable school. So of course I can only exactly. say that. And, like, maybe, and I was telling my niece, his sister, I was like, you know, maybe it's not where our fun is had, and that's where our fun goes to die. <laughs> love you, you love Chicago. Uh, <laughs> but for my nephew, her brother, I can see him having an amazing time at the University of Chicago if he goes, if he gets admitted. I want to shift to one thing. I would love to hear, you were the um, student representative for the University of California system, correct? Right. So that's a huge system of, 10, 10 campuses maybe, I don't, as a 10, I don't know how many is today. Yep. Yeah, I, I went to Berkeley as a freshman a really, really, really long time ago. So, but you represented, so you had to speak on behalf of such a huge diverse range of students. And how do you think from your sort of memory of that time, what did, how did students feel about this and think about this? And I talked to Natasha Warrick, who, who's interviewed students at three elite institutions, Brown, yeah. Oxford, Harvard, about their own experience. But I kind of would be curious whether this, be, this was a topic, is a topic yeah. in the UT. Yeah, so I mean, I was, a, I was a staff member at UC Davis between 2002 and 2005, and that's when I was actually an admissions reader as well. And so that's a little bit more about my background um, and how it, there's just this huge disconnect between the way the public talks about admissions and the way it actually works. There's this wall between those two realms because admissions officers can't talk because if they talk, there could be a lawsuit. But right there's, there's this, right. So I was a staff member at UC Davis and then from 2005 to 2010, I was a graduate student at UCLA and, and in that and I, for one year, I was president for the University of California Student Association. And so I got it. It was an amazing opportunity to meet students, undergraduates, professional students, graduate students all across the 10 campuses up and down the state of California. And even in 2007, 2008, there was, you know, some conversation about it. But um, what was fascinating to me was that a lot of Asian American students that I would meet often would say to me that they felt like they were missing something in their education. And this was also part of my dissertation too, was that I interviewed a lot of Asian American college students about campus racial climate. And so what struck me was that in that study and in my casual conversations with students across the state, some Asian American students would say, you know, love Berkeley. It's almost half Asian American today, uh, undergraduate enrollment. And uh, UCLA is something like almost 40% Asian American undergraduate enrollment. And 
that was very striking to me that students felt like, you know, the rest of the world doesn't look like this. And I feel like I'm missing something. So they were saying what? I, I, I want to get this. What did they, they were missing what? What were they saying? They were what missing they? out on understanding the diversity of the world. You know, a couple of them did say, say to me, you know, I feel like I'm being underprepared for the racial and cultural diversity of this world outside of Westwood or outside of Berkeley's campus, right? Or Irvine's campus or whatever, right? I feel like I'm having a top-notch educational experience in the classroom. And I've had to, you know, I've had some experiences of diversity in my social spaces, but for the most part, you know, the rest of the world is not, the rest of America is not 40% Asian American, right? Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting that they are observing this because the rest of America is, I mean, we can do the numbers, but America is so different in itself. Some areas of America are... Right. So if they stay in the San Gabriel Valley, if they stay in the San Gabriel Valley or Cupertino, California, or, or Queens, New York, perhaps yeah. that's, sure, that's the world. Right, but if right. I, I assume that most college-educated people are going to get outside of those right. communities and travel the world and have to work and become leaders in a very diverse world, you know. Do you think the UC system could do something to actually alleviate this in a way? Because they, because they actually, I think under Proposition Two Hundred Nine, which has been in effect for a really long time, California cannot use race in their admission practices, right? Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I think Prop 209 really, since 1996, has been in effect. And so it really ties the hands of the um, university. However, as far as I understand, um, I believe they can still do aggressive recruitment, right? Yes. So shaping that applicant pool and making sure that, because obviously you can't admit people who aren't in the pool, right? right. And so doing more work there, but that takes resources. And unfortunately, for the last 40 years or so, the, um, the state has greatly divested from public higher education. That's not just the case in California, but elsewhere too, right? So I think I heard maybe like six years ago, California's state spending on uh, state prisons exceeded that of public higher education. Which is really hard to believe if you think that these are the real true gems of American public life, public universities, sort of the Michigan's, Texas, Virginia's, you know, North Carolina, Florida's, Mich uh, California's, these schools that in some ways that you wouldn't, that what you're saying, two things have happened. Race cannot be considered anymore, and then there's a an unfunding, so now they have to come up with programs, so they have these bridge programs to try to get high school students to be interested in California campuses. That have been, have those programs themselves have been zeroed out almost on a yearly basis, right? And so, and then ironically, now you have Richard Sanders, who's suing the University of California, who's a law professor at UCLA, who is convinced that even under 209, that um, the University of California must be violating that, you know, that law because my gosh, you have this increase of Latinx students. How dare we? And so <laughs> there must be a, there must be discrimination against Asian Americans, which is astounding when you think about that because Asian Americans only make up, I think, less than fifteen percent of the state. Thirteen percent. I think yeah, it's 13% in California, so you're 40% of the student body, but 13% of the population. So he's complaining that there's too many I other minorities. You know, I think the hidden agenda, again, like Ed Bloom, the hidden agenda is really about the white numbers, right? But I think what's lost in all of these conversations is an acknowledgement of pathways to college, right? Divergent pathways to college 
and patterns. So for instance, when I was still a grad student, this is over 10 years ago now at UCLA, there was data in the state that showed that when, when Asian Americans were admitted to the UC system, regardless of the campus, over 60% of them would say, would say yes and enroll in the University of California. The lowest, that's called the yield rate, that was more than twice as likely as any other population to enroll once admitted. Something about UCs, Asian Americans love the UC. Um, maybe it's affordable, world-class education, all these things, right? I'm still a cheerleader for the UC. <laughs> and, then, and then the lowest yield rate 10 years ago was at 19%, and it was for white admitted students. So, yeah, and so then, you know, uh, I remember having conversations with my mentor, Don Nakanishi. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, but I remember talking to him, and I was like, that is so wild to me. And his response, his quip, he was known for very just witty quips, and he was like, well, white students have a lot of other options. And so they have other places that they can choose over the University of California. And perhaps other you know, students of color, Asian Americans included, perhaps don't have as many options outside of the University of California, which is a phenomenal choice. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but is, what do you, you think this case, uh, this Harvard case may go, there will be a decision in the federal court and not clear and there's no point to predict it and then it may or may not go to the Supreme Court but what you just said it's an anxiety maybe about numbers in general do you think it's just a larger anxiety by some of these plaintiffs these white Americans about the demographic shifts in America or yeah is and that's exactly what it, so when you you don't even have to dig a whole lot deeper into Ed Bloom's history but what we know about Ed Bloom is that he's been campaigning against affirmative action in higher education for quite some time but his second project is he's responsible for the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. He filed a lawsuit and won called uh, Shelby versus Holder in 2013 that gutted the Voting Rights Act. He, thankfully, he lost a, a subsequent lawsuit in voting rights. It was Evanwell versus Abbott, and that was ruled upon in 2016. And that lawsuit was against immigrant voters. It was to dilute immigrant voting rights. And if you know anything about Asian American demographics, you know that the majority of Asian Americans are immigrants. So, <laughs> What is really his motive here, right? When we know that in both cases, he's pushing for a, a color evasive strategy, a, a you know, so-called race-blind strategy to pretend as though race and racism have no influence on the way we live our lives in both college access and voting rights, right? And so he is very experienced in going to the Supreme Court. And so, yes, absolutely, that's his goal to see which case is going to get there first. And we do think, especially with the shifting of the ideological leanings on the Supreme Court bench, that things are looking really iffy. But we felt things were looking really iffy with the Fisher case. And then Justice Kennedy shocked us. Maybe... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Chief Justice Roberts will shock us. Roberts. Yeah, everybody has put their hope on Roberts that he will not let the court drift too much in one direction. But the court shouldn't really be politicized in this way to begin with. This is a whole nother conversation. I know. I mean, you can have another podcast conversation about that. <laughs> so when you stepped out of the UC system role, um, and then now you're studying this, basically. So you decided to talk to students, interview students, and admissions officers to find out what's really going on behind that firewall that no one can penetrate and know about. And what would you say to, um, to college parents to say you should 
it's it's hard advice to give, but say don't get so anxious and do not fall fall prey to this narrative that your child will be pitted against another applicant who yeah. looks different. It's just not like that. They don't have two kids and they decide this one or that one. It's not how it works at all. And you know, again, I've only interviewed about ten people so far, representing ten different institutions that I will not be releasing, but highly selective institutions. And so far. And I've pushed these people on this to try to give them hypotheticals and whatnot. And there's zero evidence. Of, that's just not how the process works. They're not looking at like student A and student B, which one are we going to do? They're looking at them one at a time with extreme diligence and detail and investigation and follow-up. I didn't realize this, but oftentimes when there's a question about a particular student, they will follow up and call counselors or teachers and say like, hey, so this something in the materials is making us think something and we're wondering if you could elaborate on this. It could be like a talent. It could be a something that the student didn't know to highlight, but that the institution is interested in. And so they're, they're trying to piece together various collections of data and pursuing more data, quite frankly, to try to figure out, piece together, who is this student? How might they be on our campus? How might they be on that part of our campus that offers different curricular offerings or activities? Right. Would they become a leader? And it's not as if, and there's all this stuff about their, you know, out there saying like, oh, Harvard is penalizing Asian Americans for personality. One, there's no personality rating. It's on, it's called a personal rating, but it's not penalizing people for being quiet, so to speak, or outspoken, right? It's shaping a class. So realizing that people kind of just it's a fluid process through the admission cycle to see, well, how would these students look like together? How would the, and, and by look like together, I don't mean necessarily just racial demographics. I'm talking about like, well, here's several student body presidents and here's the debate team people and here's the artists and here's the community organizers and here's the people who are we're caring to each other. Here's the people who are blunt with each other, right? Like, you know, just kind of trying to envision and shape a community. It's a complex process and it's quite fluid is what I'm finding. Mm -hmm. No, it's fascinating. I mean, I look forward to um, when you have your research finished to, to, to hear what you, what you find out because it's not going to be about finding the key to the college enigma, you could make a lot of money with that kind of book. There are lots of books out there. Yeah. And anything is just going to add to the fact that this is just a very complicated process. <laughs> I want to thank you for um, joining me on the podcast, uh, Oriana. It's really, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. I am crossing my fingers for your nephew, Alex, right now. Thank you very much. And I, I think he's thinking about just going to Northeastern. I'm not going to say his last name. We don't share our last name, University of Chicago, so... <laughs> Great, cool. All right, so thanks so much, and I hope to have you on the podcast again when maybe when this research is complete, we can talk about what you found. Sure, thank you so much, Uli.